You guys, I have really struggled with the intro to this podcast because I feel like no matter what I say, I'm not going to do it justice. I have known Andre and his wife for going on 13 years. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen their cameo appearance in my beekeeping videos from this summer. I got a lot of great messages saying, I don't know who those two are, but we want them as our neighbors. And I have to say you would. I'm really lucky to have known them in our personal lives, to have our kids grow up together. And now to bring you Andre to the podcast. I have rarely come across someone who is so inspired, inspiring, has such a wide range of stories, is always up for an adventure. Andre touched on some of his experience in the podcast, but he went from professional ski racing to running, managing, directing, or founding six different companies spanning almost 20 years. He co-founded a global advertising and software development company. He's worked for Microsoft. He built and funded a commercial bakery from scratch, launched a CPA firm, was a lobbyist, and most recently, he's joined the fire department to become a firefighter and an EMT3. He's also a professional photographer who uses photography to support his storytelling for himself and others. And currently he sits on the board of directors for Credit Union One. He actively does business consulting for businesses across the country. And he's also on the board of directors for the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association and as an athlete trustee. Let me tell you when I say that we share so much about building a business, but we really dive into what it looks like to hire an employee from the high level mindset to the nuts and bolts. And listening back to this episode, I laughed out loud several times and I know what you will too. He has a gift for storytelling and a philosophy of life that lets us know that everything is going to be okay. So I bring you my friend, Andre Horton. Andre, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I am stoked to be on the show as well, Julie. (laughs) I'm so excited to introduce you to the podcast audience. And I was thinking back about when we first met and our families know each other in real life, and we could never figure out what you did for work. And so one day my husband and you were going to the store and we had probably known you years at this point. And he said, okay, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to ask him what he does. And then <laughs> we're going to know what he does. <laughs> and so he came home, right. He came home from the store and he said, I said, okay, so what did you find out? What does he do? And he's like, he explained it to me and I still don't know. <laughs> uh, well, that was maybe a win on my end, right? Like just ever convoluted and secret. So I guess um, the question is, are you a spy? Am I a sp- uh, no, I always tell people I was in uh, witness protection for a long time just to get them, <laughs> you know, to catch them off guard. I was in witness protection. Then I was with the CIA and, you know, Alaska's uh, no, not a bad place to hang out if you're in witness protection. I feel like. I think it'd be a very safe place for witness protection. Jared, like many people probably have confusion on like, what do you do? Like, how, how do you function? And I've had people ask me, Hey, <laughs> Andre, what do you do? And I can't in a single sentence really put it together as effectively as I'd like to. 
Um, but I can do it in a short paragraph. Um, <laughs> like. So let's talk about how you went from professional ski racing. I don't know, you might've had more careers before that, but from that to your progression into what you're doing now. All right. That sounds like a very fair conversation to have that I can illustrate better. So I was, I was in the national ski team for six years. So I, I left the state of Alaska and moved to Wyoming. Uh, why a black person would move to Wyoming for no good reason after high school. <laughs> People ask me that all the time. But I moved to Wyoming because I wanted to be on the national ski team. Uh, I was skiing pretty good as a kid in Alaska, but I knew I needed to get down to Lower 48 where there's a lot more athletes and a lot more really, really competitive skiers. In order to get better, you got to be around people that are better than you. So I moved to Wyoming. Anyway, I was there for two to three years after high school, made the national ski team, and then moved to Salt Lake City. And uh, I was on the national ski team for six years after that, did some Olympic trials. I lived at Olympic training centers every summer, traveled the world, skied about 200 days a year, lived out of a ski bag. So the segue I could say from professional sports to entrepreneurship is very close. Um, the idea of an athlete, you got to train, you got to have goals. And then every day you wake up and you're like, okay, what can I do today to be productive and to be effective and to be successful? And the cool part about athletics is that any given day I woke up ski racing, if I won a race, I would be on the next plane to Europe to the next race. And if I won that race, I'd be on the next plane to the World Cup. So I had all this potential every day to do anything I wanted. But if I was successful, I would tangibly improve and be successful and move along in the sport. And I think in business, where I learned that too, is that, hey, if I'm successful in this entrepreneurial activity or idea, I'm going to be successful. And in order to work to be successful, I have to work backwards saying, I got to have goals, what I want to do for my business, who do I need to help me? And then what resources am I lacking? And that's, that's how an athlete functions. And that's the mindset an athlete has. So to go from being a professional skier to being a business person was very easy for me to do. So after I skied all over the place, I uh, spent most of my time at 10,000 feet in spandex is what I tell people. And I was, I was technically a world-class athlete. And I had to take a small segue in that, for instance, I had a sports psychologist, a renowned sports psychologist travel with the national team. And he thought I had some confidence problems. And he asked me, he said, Andre, are you a world-class athlete? And I said, no, Bodie Miller is, and Darren Rawls and all these other guys that win the world cup. And I'm not, a, I'm not a world-class athlete. I'm trying to be. And then he asked me, he says, Hey, what's the difference between you and them? Do you train any less than they do? Do you work any harder? are less harder than they do? Do you have any less resources than they do? And I thought for a second, I was on a plane to Munich for some Europa Cups. And I sat there for a second and I realized that I had the exact same resources as Bodie Miller and the best in the world. So what's interesting me considering and having the mindset of being best in the world and being a world-class athlete to whatever I was had the mindset at the time. Mm -hmm. And he says, you've been living this kind of lie where you don't think you're adequate enough and you can't succeed at something because you don't think you're as good as the next person next to you, when indeed you have the same resources. So step into it and say, hey, I'm a professional world-class athlete. I have everything I need to succeed. I just have not had the exact opportunity to go out of the gate and be as fast as I can, but I have everything I need. So anyway, where I'm, where I'm going with that is even if as a business person, we live in probably one of the best countries to do business in. Mm -hmm. Like you can wake up today and say, I'm going to start a business. And chances are you will have the resources to do so. And that's the coolest thing about being in this country is that we have the ability to do that. So I came back from skiing and retired and says, you know what? I think I'm going to start a business. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I had zero resources. <laughs> like yeah. I was a, a professional athlete, but I, I knew my parents had some money. And a small problem with that sometimes when people borrow money is you have no incentive to pay them back because it's, oh, it's my mom's money. I can borrow. If I don't make it, it doesn't work out. I don't have to pay my mom back. And I read that as a kid when I was researching what I was going to do for a business. And I realized that that could be a fallacy. So mm-hmm. I treated my mom like a bank. I wrote her a check every month and did a bill pay to pay her back the loan and tre- treated my mom like she was a bank. So I didn't want to make the mistake of not making the correct decisions because I was worried or not worried about paying yeah. back. So nevertheless, I started my first business and I had my first business as an asphalt contractor, a general contractor for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to pay my pay for my way to go to school and college after retiring from professional sports. And I borrowed $40,000 from my mom. I ended up starting a general contracting business that did anywhere from like $250,000 to $700,000 just in the summer mm-hmm. every year. And this is when I first started hiring employees, which is obviously what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Uh, it's like hiring employees. And I would have to say, it's kind of scary at first because you're like, oh my goodness, I have to be responsible for these people. I have to like, they are re- depending on me for a paycheck and mm-hmm. I have to be there. And I would have to say my first day of hiring people was nervous. But then those employees I built relationships with, and eventually those employees ran my business when I wasn't even there. So it was a worthwhile investment. Um, And it's an entrepreneurial risk at first because you're hiring someone in there depending on you. But that's an essential skill set every entrepreneur should have. It's like, hey, yes, you're carrying the weight of the world. But at the same time, you would not be given the skill set you have if you couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. that's That's how I started hiring my first employees when I was a general contractor. Yeah, But to go back to answer your question, like, what does Andre do? Well, that was a general contractor I did for 10 years. And at the same time, I started just picking up other small jobs here and there. And I went to college. So I was basically an, uh, a student for six years and did my undergraduate in marketing and management mm-hmm. and had a minor in English and rhetoric because I loved reading. Or sorry, I started, I loved writing. And then I was also on the UAA debate team, which was a blast. And learning how to debate taught me some really cool skills with business mainly around in debate, which I urge anyone to consider looking at is you never get to pick sides. They flip a coin and they tell you which side you have to debate. Mm -hmm. And the cool part is, is like, you might be thinking about a a way to do something, but when you get a flipped coin and you have to consider the other side and you have to debate the other side, it teaches you to learn something different and to learn a different perspective. So this is the very long answer to what does Andre do? (laughs) Essentially, I have never been able to not be an entrepreneur. And entrepreneurship is a vast array of many different things. But at the end of the day, between business consulting and finishing grad school, and I was a lobbyist for a little while, I ran a donut shop. I started a CPA firm. What else? I even worked in a sausage plant for a while. I sold medical devices. Um, It all comes back to just business. And I've always uh, appreciated and been a student of business. That's probably the most effective answer I can give you, which was longer than a paragraph. I apologize, but it's just business. I like, I enjoy business. I enjoy all the relationships you can build in a business. And I have to say like one of the most engaging jobs was probably being a lobbyist because it was one of those jobs that required me to just use all my resources I had at any given time relationally to build a campaign or to support somebody. But finally, I kind of took a a Y on the road and applied for the, the fire department. And people mm-hmm. are always like, what are, you, what are you doing that for? To me, it was still an entrepreneurial idea of like having, working somewhere and getting paid. And it's a governmental job, yes. But then I have um, a robust amount of time off to to scheme entrepreneurial activities. 
Um, Wouldn't you say a lot of firefighters also have side businesses and have sort of entrepreneur things going on? Yes. And that's really the the allure of it in my season of life because I have two kids, I have a wife. I'm I'm enjoying the season of life, but I didn't want to work a 60 hour week like I was doing as a lobbyist and not have time for family. But then I still wanted to work, but then have time to scheme, so to speak, on the next entrepreneurial undertaking. And yes, lots of um, firefighters also have all kinds of things they do from commercial fishing to home inspections to they build, they do a lot of stuff in real estate. Although you work a lot of hours, you still have lots of days off and continuous like four day chunks of time. With four days off in a row, you can, I mean, you can take over the world if you needed to. Yeah, you can fly to New York and back. (laughs) Hey, uh, oh, I totally forgot that part. I meant to say too, like when I was ski racing, my mother gave me her AE1 Canon, which was like a 35 millimeter. And she's like, here, take this on your next trip. And I think I went to South America and I skied in the Andes and I only had one lens and I had a couple rolls of film and I got absolutely smitten with photography. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked how a 50 millimeter lens, by the way, they call it a nifty 50, but a 50 millimeter lens is the most representative lens of the human eye. So when you travel with a 50 millimeter, what you see is what the human eye would see. So it makes you be very creative on like, this is what I see. And you try to capture it on film. And that was when I was like 16. But before that, I did a whole lot in high school. I did a whole bunch in college. And then essentially photography has helped me be a storyteller to business. So I enjoy like telling the business story and telling a marketing story. And so photography has been an absolute partnership with me between using both sides of my brain. So it's impossible for me to go anywhere without taking a camera and telling a story. And I think what has always been also really interesting to me about you and your wife is that you guys are so incredibly humble. And so it's like, if you have a conversation with you, you don't know that you're talking with somebody who might be on all these different boards or might have, you know, these business or anything that's going on, including, you know, having your photography published in, you know, national magazines and stuff. So I think it's something that I look to and it helps me as an example in my everyday life. Think about how I can show up and really serve and also have a humble heart and lead with who I am as a person and not my accomplishments, if that makes sense. Well, I'm blushing a little bit. Ultimately, that's a stunning compliment because like, I was raised by, I would say, some pretty strict parents, but a unique parents because my dad's from Georgia yes. and he's black. My mom's from Idaho and she's white. So it's, it's a cornucopia of eccentricities, <laughs> as I call it, just yes. growing up with that type of uh, background. But they were, for instance, like my dad today even said, he's never told me he's ever been proud of me because he doesn't want to be prideful. So he can't yeah. really tell me he's proud of me because he doesn't think it's a good idea to be prideful. And I, and I was like, dad, you can just say good job sometimes. He's like, oh, I know I do. But he, like, he's so serious about making sure he doesn't be prideful. And my dad with his accomplishments all by himself given this season and the, this, the type of life he's lived for his age is impressive. Um, so anyway, my parents instilled that, which is like lead with what you can serve people with instead of, you know, who you are, your resources, like, mm-hmm. how can I help? Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that, Julie. Well, I think talking about hiring employees, we had a little bit of a conversation before we got started and One thing that I think is common, whether you are hiring contractors or hiring an employee, especially if it's your first time or if it's in the very beginning of your business, is that major fear factor. I talk to people every day 
even people who've been guests on the podcast who are maxed out, they can't do any more possible work. They can't take on any more clients. They know that they should seek some type of support, but they're frozen either not knowing how to move forward, who to hire, or just some of those details like that unknown of what if I hire the wrong person? What if they, is it going to take me longer to train them and then really not pan out? They might have heard stories from friends that have hired people and that didn't work out. So I'm wondering from your point of view, what you would say to somebody who, whether it's a contractor or an employee who is thinking about hiring for the first time in their business and what advice you would give them. Excellent. Um, I was just writing something down there. I, you were asking me why, and this goes back to Simon Sinek. He's one of my like favorite authors and he has this understand your why, know your why. And I wish I would have thought about that when I hired my first employee. And technically I, it was intuitive, but like, my, my first question I asked myself is why am I going to hire somebody? Mm-hmm. And when you ask why it's like, well, what are they going to do? And how long are they going to do it? <laughs> but these yeah. are simple things you get about, uh, what are we going to do? So I just started whiteboarding it. The first time I hired someone, I'm like, here's all the things I need to get done in a day. And I, when I started writing it all down, I felt this like cathartic release of like, Oh my goodness, this feels great writing down everything. And these are all the things I've been doing myself yeah. that I shouldn't be doing because it goes back to like businesses fail when the people that are driving vision are they're the executive or they're the visionary get into the weeds and doing tactical, if not operational things when they need to remain strategic and focus on the big goals. And so when I wrote all these things down, I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely need to hire somebody because if I continue on this path, my business will fail because I can't focus on sales. I can't focus on the relationship and the strategic initiatives I want to do as a business person. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote all these things down, it made it very clear to me <laughs> that I needed to hire somebody. And uh, the question you probably had too was like, well, do I ha- how's this pay structure? Should they be contractors or should they be employees? And I didn't know where you wanted to fit that conversation in because that's always the first one that I think people come up with is like, should I hire a, a contractor or hire an employee? And technically that's an entire conversation all by itself. Versus I think the simplest question is like, let's say we had to hire an employee. How do we do it? Mm-hmm. If that's the direction you want to go. Cause there's like many different ways to do that where initially I did not hire a contractor where I think most people nowadays essentially think initially like, oh, I'm going to hire a contractor or I'm going to go to Fiverr or I'm going to get a yeah. PEO, which is a professional employment organization and do it that way. And people do that in business because they want to mitigate cost. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is if you focus on mitigating costs, which is an honorable thing to do in business, yeah. sometimes you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're trying to cut costs. I get it. But by the time you've spent the resources to cut the costs, you could have just had an employee. Yeah. Well, I think um, if we could do so- high level, like what would be, do you think some of the pros of hiring an employee versus a contractor? If you were talking to somebody and they came to you and said, you know, without you having the time or the information of like, what is your business? You know, maybe if you have some guidelines about whether it's around annual revenue, whether it's around the tasks that you want to complete or your long-term goals in your business, like what kind of things do you think would come into play for someone when they're thinking who to hire? Yeah, excellent. I'll try to stay as top level as I can on this. And I hate it when people say, are they answer a question with, it depends. <laughs> well, it depends. It really does. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, if I had to be as generic as possible, the only time I'd say it depends, it, which it doesn't, but it's like, well, what industry are you in? Like I was in a uh, general contractor. So for an example, I was in 
technically the labor industry. Like I needed labor. Yeah. I didn't need strategic help. I needed labor. And let's say hypothetically, if you are in the brain space and you're a creative, like I'm a, if you're a videographer or a photographer, that type of employee will be different than labor. So you're like, okay, Andre, well, how, well, how do I triage or make this decision? Like, let's just try to do two examples. So in general contracting, I knew I needed labor. And I also knew labor is the easiest one to triage, so to speak, because I'm going to have to say, here's a shovel, go dig that hole. <laughs> here's this rented machine I have. Here's an excavator. We need a trench over there. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing it from a, a task level, which sometimes labor is, definitively they're employees. Because once the task is done, they come back to you and say, okay, I'm done with that. What do I do next? And I think some people have stress about that. They're like, oh my goodness, they're done with the ditch already. What am I going to do now? What are they going to do next? And you're like, oh my... And, you know, I hired employees that were very, what's the word? They had uh, initiative. So once they saw that was done, they start another project and they just keep going. And eventually I didn't really have to manage them that much. But from a labor perspective, like having people down to a task is definitely an employee. And most people will say, well, who makes the rules on this? Is it the IRS? I'm like, yes, technically the IRS does make decisions on if someone's a contractor or an employee. And you can get into the weeds on what that is. (laughs) I mean, Amazon does. They've grayed the area between a contractor and employee, but I'm not talking about the IRS. I'm talking about just like you and I, if I wanted to mm-hmm. hire somebody. And if it's a task and it's like, hey, go do that. And they come back and you, and you go back and forth. They're doing a task. Now let's jump to something like I ran an advertising agency. I, I co-founded this advertising agency called um, UIT. And we had like 16 employees at once. And I had to hire the first three people and they were professionals, meaning like, they made six figures a year. Mm-hmm. So we were like, ooh, how do I write a check for that? Like it was labor is like 15 to 30 bucks an hour. Yeah. Professionals are on salary. They're not on hourly. And they the amount of money they need, like you're writing $10,000 checks per person. You're like, oh my, what are we doing? What? <laughs> but I got used to it. This was like 15 years into business. So I was, I was able to hire these people, but nevertheless, they were creatives. And most people would argue like, well, if you're hiring a graphic designer, can't you just make them a, contr- a contractor? And I, my response was no, because I had a strategic outcome I needed them to accomplish and I needed creative direction the whole time. Granted, I could say, hey, build a logo for XYZ company and they would do an amazing job and create a logo. But then when the logo is done, they would come back to the fold and help me strategically. So that's one way to put it is like, will these people help me strategically or will they help me tactically? or operationally. And I don't mean to like confuse or any, anybody with like, well, Andre, you're throwing around tactical and operational strategic, but from a business perspective, school, they'd say stock. So S-T-O-C, and that's the order of operations for management, so to speak. So S would be strategic. That's always the owner of the business or the executive. You're, you're creating a strategic plan. It's a high level. And then T for tactical, like how do we follow our strategy? What are the tactical things we need to do? And then operational is like the tasks. Like how do we do these small things that are part of our tactics that lead to a larger strategic overall vision? And the last one was C, which is contingency. And almost everyone's responsible for contingency, meaning like if the client doesn't like it, what do we do? If the excavator digs into a, a big, huge gas line and explodes, or in my case, we started a hotel on fire, what do we do? <laughs> and the, and there's a really cool quick story on that is, yes, I did have an employee who started a hotel on fire on accident. And the cool thing about having an employee is if he or she was burned or had a fire, the insurance covered their claim. 
And technically work comp can also help cover me for their expense because I had insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was awesome. And the cool thing is if the contractor started the fire, if they were a contract, likely my contractor would pass the buck to me. That's just what's going to happen. Like, well, I got hired by Andre, so it's Andre's fault. Or is like an employee called me in tears saying, hey, I started the hotel on fire. And I was like, hey, we got insurance for this. Don't worry. And I hung the phone up and freaked out. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. You started a hotel. How big is the hotel? What hotel is it? And it was like a hotel in, in Spinard. It was an older hotel. We were doing some work on the siding and we were using a propane torch and it started it started a hotel on fire. So if you ever go down in Spinard and you see this, the nice new, it's called the Penguin Hotel. There's a new addition on one side. That was us. We started it on fire. And was I upset at the employee? No, it was not. Nothing malicious. It was literally an accident. But uh, nevertheless, those are the two scenarios I look at for like if they're creative or if they're labor. Hiring an employee, it's not it's not that hard. It's just getting over the initial kind of concern people have. And I don't know if you were going to talk about that, but I would have to say the initial fear of hiring someone is usually around two things. It's paperwork or compliance and this like burden of like having to to take care of somebody or having to be responsible for somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can mitigate both of those, um, which you can, and I can tell you, show you how and tell you how, you will be on the road to like really, really having a good time having employees. And people are like, Andre, you're crazy. <laughs> Everyone talks about how horrible employees are. I'm like, not really. If you can leverage an employee and you have what I call a multiplier effect, which is another reason why you hire someone, your business will grow. Like mm-hmm. that's how it um, and the multiplier effect is like when I go back to hiring someone is like, why am I hiring them? Because I can multiply my revenue because I can leverage the employee. And sometimes that's harder to do with a contractor because a contractor technically might want more money. Yeah. You know, so I can, I'm going to pay you thousand dollars a week to do this for me where the employee can do that and all these other projects and tasks maybe. So per dollar I'm spending on my employee, I'm actually leveraging and multiplying their effect far beyond what I could have. Well, and they're all contractors, you know, by definition are running their own businesses. So they're going to charge more up front usually because they have, all, they're not taking home necessarily what they're charging you in their hourly or their retainer rate. They have to pay out of that, their marketing expenses. So even if you hire someone for $20 an hour to start out as a virtual assistant, they're not bringing home $20 an hour. You know, they're bringing mm-hmm. home substantially less. So do you think that for somebody starting out and hiring, do you think there's a certain revenue that makes sense? Or would you more so look at their goals and what they're not able to do strategically or, you know, what they cannot bring in based on not having this help? I, I wish there was a magic number for like, well, if I'm making more than this, I can mm-hmm. do it. I mean, one way to look at it too, from a tax perspective is if I'm making more revenue than $150,000 a year, it would be a benefit to actually have an employee because there's actually a tax benefit to doing so that would offset that 150000 that you can deduct back down to what an, a wage is or a net income for you. So an example would be like, if I'm, let's say I'm making $250,000 a year on XYZ business, the amount of taxes I'm going to get hit, like self-employment taxes myself, but yeah. making $250,000. And let's say this isn't even, I could I could um, scale my business as big or small as I wanted. Mm-hmm. The amount of taxes you're going to pay is ludicrous <laughs> if, unless you can deduct, unless you're a heavy asset business where you can deduct, there's, you know, I bought like 15 dump trucks or I have a heavy asset business. But in this like creative season we're in and creative industry, a lot of it is 
your brain. Mm-hmm. You don't have things you can deduct against unless you have employees. Granted, yeah, you could have a contractors, but now you're just cutting into your net income. So I would wish there was an easy number, but I would certainly think anytime you're getting in or around six figures, having an employee is totally okay. That makes sense. Yeah. When people are thinking about hiring an employee, do they have to start hiring someone at 40 hours a week? Let's say if you're making six figures and you think, I really would like to have some support, hire an employee, but I can only come up with you know enough stuff at the at the start to think maybe I have 15 hours a week for them. Does that make any difference in your decision or your recommendation, whether or not they bring on an employee versus a contractor? The area in that is like a break-even point for your initial sunk cost. And like for some people like sunk cost, it's literally, it's the cost you're going to pay that you're not going to get back. So in this, in this case, it's work comp. Uh, and the, this depends on what classification of business you're in. If for instance, the most expensive is roofing. Yeah. So if I run a roofing company, work comp is very expensive because it's a high risk industry. But let's say I'm just a creative and I need someone who's going to help me, a virtual assistant, or let's say uh, they help me with some clerical stuff, or even if they're creative, if they're in an office, the rate that you pay for work comp is laughable compared to roofing. But obviously roofing, if you need employees, you need labor, that's just the cost of doing business as, as that work comp cost. But as an employer, I would like work comp for roofing. Because if my guy you know, falls off the roof, work comp covers that. If I'm trying to have contract workers and I'm a roofer and they fall off, I am absolutely liable. And I've seen it many times where you have contractors who will sue the, the main contractor because they technically were supposed to be an employee, but they weren't. Where I'm going with this too is like, where do you have this cut off of these sunk costs? And I would suggest nothing less than 20 hours because that kind of makes sense. But if also, if you're hiring someone in a clerical business, the work comp costs might cost you nine hundred to twelve hundred dollars a year, uh, you know, and the, and a minimum cost for work comp generally, if you're a contractor, like in heavy industry, is fifteen hundred dollars is the minimum cost that any insurance broker will charge you. And there's ways around that. You could get like uh, you could lease your employees through a PEO, or you can pay in in bits and pieces. So if you break up twelve hundred dollars, I mean that's hundred dollars a month. Not bad for having an, an absolute uh, liability covered for you. Anything happens. They trip and fall in your own house. If they're working at your house or in an office, it's covered. And that, that blanket is amazing to have. But to answer your question, I would say it's usually around the 20 hour thing. And most people are considered part-time. I think it's under 35 hours, Mm -hmm. but you're the boss. If you're the boss, I'm like, Hey, I got 20 hours of work for you this week. Can you do it or not? And that's for the employee to figure out. Right. Right. Usually that's the kind of cutoff, but I, I've hired people for 15 hours, 20 hours, because I'm not sure, but before you know it, they're at 40 hours because oh, there's that much sure. work to be done. You just write, you're like, oh my goodness, where'd all this work come from? You're like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I find that too. When people hire their first time and they get somebody on and they get some support, all of a sudden things magically appear. Well, oh, if you could do this. You can do that too. Or it's just like, once you are able to clear your head a little bit and get some Mm -hmm. things off of your plate, then you say, oh, well, this also makes sense for me not to do anymore. For example, sales calls is one that a lot of people will struggle with when they're transitioning, because unless that's their sweet spot, having someone on their team cover their those sales calls makes a lot of sense. And it's an easy thing to outsource, but I find mentally or emotionally, people have a harder time letting certain tasks go than others. Mm -hmm. 
and that, I guess that's the that was the largest struggle for me initially was I was I had all these tasks I was doing as a entrepreneur and I had a hard time letting them go because I didn't trust anybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, had, I had to hold the world on my shoulders. I'm not giving this to anybody. But then I had a really good employee and they start taking these tasks. And then sooner or later, I was like, man, I got a lot more time to do sales or I've got a lot more time to do this or I can go back to my original vision and work on it. And the problem is I hired this guy at 20, 20 hours a week. And by the time I got done with my first week, he had taken over so many tasks that I had and I had done more sales than I ever had just in the two weeks I had him. And we had to hire somebody else because <laughs> we had so much more revenue. Right. And I was like, oh, this is so backwards, but it worked out, you know. Yeah. So it was like anyway. that taking action before you're ready. There's a lot of people that have that opinion of you should hire before you're ready. And what do you think if you if somebody said to you, we think you should hire before you're ready, what would your response be? It sounds nerve wracking initially, but like hire before you're ready is is probably a safe thing to do, given it's hard to scale after it's too late. If that makes yeah. sense. So yeah. And I think knowing how to scale is one of those like mezzanine business skills that I wish I knew in the beginning, but I didn't learn. I had to learn the hard way. And I said, I told you earlier, it's like good decisions come from experience, but experience comes from bad decisions sometimes. And, and I only learned that because I wish I knew how to scale sooner, but that was a skill set. We didn't have YouTube when I started out. We didn't have Gary Vaynerchuk's and like, Tim Ferriss is talking about how to scale a business effectively. We had it in a textbook in grad school, but that's very different than how the world moves at this pace. So nevertheless, like hire before you're ready makes sense because if you really want to scale it, like scaling kind of gets the, you have to have the cart in front of the horse almost to scale. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I hired my first employee, I was like, I'm not ready for this guy. I only got 20 hours. And then as soon as like two weeks happened and I had so much more bandwidth to actually do my job and do what I was passionate about. We increased sales so much. I had to hire the, make him full-time 40 hours. Plus he was already getting overtime because I had, we were so busy that I had to hire somebody else. So hiring intuitively right before you think you're ready is probably a good idea. I love it. I know we've talked a lot up until this point about mindset stuff, because I really do think whether or not someone tuned in for the tactical information about how to hire, which I think we should talk about next. If you mm -hmm. don't have the right mindset going in, or you have mindset blocks around getting support around hiring around really taking ownership too, and becoming that CEO, because sometimes people start out and perhaps some people in my audience who they might've started thinking, I just don't want to take my kid to daycare. I just want a little bit extra to be able to provide the family vacations and whether or not the business stays at that level, that's perfectly fine. But there are people who decide this is amazing. I want to do this so much more. This is turning into what I couldn't even have imagined. So regardless of where they started out talking about those things and helping them work out some of those blocks that they could come up against is really helpful. But let's talk about getting into the weeds of hiring your first employee. What do you recommend that people have in place before they bring on their first employee? I would go shopping for a workers' comp, which is a requirement in the state of Alaska and most uh, any state, I believe. And then when you're shopping for workers' comp, make sure the insurance adjuster is classifying your business correctly. Because sometimes they just throw you into this generic category. And it's like, well, you only got two employees and one employee. We're just going to give you this generic category. 
like, no, say I'm classified as this, this, and this, because that's how they're going to assign risk to you. Mm -hmm. And usually if you only have one employee, they will assign you a risk. They will assign you to a risk pool and which is a pool of people that are in work comp and you belong to a pool, which is kind of cool. It saves costs quite a bit. I don't know if every state does that, but Alaska has a pool of workers comp and you can pull from the pool given your classification. Uh, So work comp is one thing to look for because that's a requirement. Then there's some paperwork like an I-9, which is basically an employment application that they're going to say, hey, are you an American citizen? Do you have your passport number or driver's license? Do you have alimony to pay? These are like some of the paperwork things. But those are like really the main two things. If you go work anywhere, they're going to ask you for is like, do you have a driver's license? Uh, Are you a felon? Uh, Which you probably from an HR perspective, maybe can't ask somebody. But I mean, before you hire somebody, you should obviously do some court view and make sure they're who they say they are. But those are the two main compliance things I look for is like going and shopping for work comp, seeing what the prices are and how it's covered and what the deductibles and or premiums are. And then you're going to process go through the process of a W-2 with a possible employee. So really there's not a lot of like crazy things you have to do, like give a kidney or draw blood for <laughs> trying to hire someone. This is simply like, Hey, can you fill this form out? It's an I-9. Everyone has to do it. If you want to work for somebody and then you go from there. And the thing is too, is once you have this information, the next steps is like, okay, let me find or procure a payroll processing company. And we talked about Gusto is one that's online. That's pretty fast and awesome. Mm-hmm. There's ADP. ADP is like one of the largest in the world that does payroll. And then there's also like QuickBooks or FreshBooks. Um, and it means 2021. There's so many options. You're, I can guarantee you're not going to be the first entrepreneur that's trying to hire somebody. There's plenty of things and options out there. You're not the first one to come up with a troubleshooting issue that can't be solved on the internet. If somebody wanted to ask specific questions about either their revenue or what made sense for their business or what potential tax write-offs are available, do you recommend somebody going to an accountant in their state? If somebody's using an online accounting service or bookkeeping service, would they potentially have that information or would you always want to seek some local advice and pay for that before you brought somebody on? If you have your workers' comp set up, if you have your payroll set up, you can print the forms from the irs.gov website. Mm-hmm. What would be the benefit of talking to a professional before you hired someone? Uh, mostly peace of mind. And I, since I started a CPA firm, I'm not a CPA, but I, for some reason I was on the state board of accounting for nine years and we licensed all the accountants in the state. And why I did that for nine years is a different story or a podcast, I guess. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I helped start a CPA firm. And there's a big, huge difference in this industry between bookkeepers and accountants. And by no means am I saying accountants are not absolutely awesome at their job. However, they are totally, I wouldn't say fixated. They're they are very strategically oriented towards the big picture where yes. a bookkeeper is like, give me a box of receipts and I'll make them organized. And like bookkeepers, I think are they're, they are the glue to accounting is bookkeepers. And there's lots of bookkeepers that are absolutely brilliant at their job. They're just not CPAs. Definitely. So I've always had a, <laughs> I've always had a knack for like finding a really good bookkeeper and saying, hey, I want to hire this person. Can you help me? And the first thing they're going to say is like, well, I'm not an accountant. I'm like, I know you're not an accountant, but you've been doing this for 20 years and you have the processes down and you can look at my books in a minute and tell me if I'm ready for this. And chances are they will. So I have a bookkeeper now and I also have an accountant. And my bookkeeper I've had for seven years and they're completely digital. Like they just, I just scan stuff. I take pictures of my phone of a receipt and I email it to them and they keep track in QuickBooks for me. 
Like they're amazing. And the cost they are per month lets me sleep at night. Like <laughs> the idea that, ooh, did I file my 941s and my, my payroll taxes up to date? They know all that and they take care of me. And it's the, the amount of money I pay for them I don't is nominal compared to what a good night's rest is. Then there's my CPA. So after my bookkeeper's done, I'll hand him my entire packet that's all organized and all and all organized inside of QuickBooks. My CPA will take a look at it. And the CPA are usually the people that assign a tax strategy for you, right? But a CPA, like an attorney, you don't want to send them a shoebox full of goodies and just <laughs> messy receipts. Like they, they hate that. I mean, they'll do it. They'll just charge you like an attorney. Like they're charging for paper clips and copies and emails. But I sent them a really nice ledger. And they're like, oh, okay, you made this much this year. And this is how we're going to structure this. And anyway, it's just so those two professionals are absolutely critical to talk to. I always talk to a bookkeeper first because they get me organized. Then I talk to an accountant after that. And the cost for these professional services are nominal. Like I could probably get an hour talking to a bookkeeper for $120. But they can organize my entire year for how I need to organize my receipts, my deduct- deductions, and they can also help me set up payroll. So I could go work with a bookkeeper and say, hey, I need to set up a payroll for Jane Smith and John Doe. And they'll say, do you have this paperwork, this paperwork, and this paperwork? And they will actually help me enter it into QuickBooks or ADP or Gusto or any type of app because they're all used to it. All these professionals, that's all they use all day. So the little time that a bookkeeper, I can sit side by side with them. Uh, I mean, I don't know what COVID will do with that, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, the hour that I have to pay them, I know for sure my employees are entered into my payroll system correctly. All their deductions are there. They're going to have automated W-2s that are going to print out. And also, I know that I can automate payroll and a bookkeeper can help you do that. I mean, granted, if you're one of those people that roll your sleeves up and like, I'm going to figure this out on my own, I would ask you why. It's 2021. Why would you possibly spend five hours trying to figure out payroll if there's thousands of people that have used these apps and online portals to do it? Spend five hours doing sales or doing what you're passionate about, not five hours trying to figure out payroll. For sure. I don't know if you're familiar with Rachel Rogers, but she is popular in the online space and her, I don't love blanket advice about anything in business, but in hiring, (laughs) she recommends to everybody their first hire is a bookkeeper. I don't necessarily agree, but I'm open to, I'm open to other perspectives. So I wonder if you think when somebody's starting in business, what you think about that advice? Yeah, I'm with you on like the blanket thing as well. But the, the one thing I would agree with her about that is, is like, not having a bookkeeper be your first professional you seek is like, I don't need to see a dentist. I brush my teeth. I'm like, well, okay, okay, I get it. You probably floss and brush your teeth a lot. However, <laughs> it's nice to go see the dentist occasionally to make sure everything's right. Same thing with a bookkeeper. Like, no, it's not probably, you know, like you don't have to go do it. However, man, it's so nice to like have them organize you. And it's not like you have to have a long protracted contract with a bookkeeper where it's days and days and hours and hours. You say, I want to meet once. I want to show you what I'm doing. And you can tell me if I'm messing up or not. And that alone right there is totally worth it. It is, it is peace of mind. When I was a CFO at the advertising agency, like I had time to figure out payroll. I had time to enter receipts. I had time to have strategy for how we were going to do deductions. Again, I still had an accountant and a CPA look over at the end of the year. And I think, I'm trying to think of my costs, like 16 employees, kind of an overall audit of our year, I think was like $2,200. 
they charge me or maybe $2,500. My accountant charged me to look at my business books for 16 employees. I mean, we were doing seven figures. So I mean, $2,200. Yeah. Nominal. Yeah. So can you speak to your personal experience with, we spoke a little bit about your taxes and potential to be audited when you have employees. Can you talk to us about what that could look like? And if people have that fear or they might not even know enough to be afraid of that. So maybe we're giving them a fear they don't need, but (laughs) what does that look like in terms of taxes and tax audits once you bring on employees? Well, I am, I guess I would joke that it's too soon, but that was a long time ago. Nevertheless, my tax stories are hilarious given I've been audited three times and people are like, oh my goodness, you've been audited. And then you start, you know, you want to grab, go grab a shot of whiskey and be like, oh my goodness, I'm getting audited. Never fear an audit. Do not fear an audit. So the first time I got audited, I freaked out. I was like, you're walking back from the mail and it's this big, thick IRS envelope. And you're like, dear Mr. Horton, no, no, please, no. And you're reading it. It's like, we're auditing. You're da, da, da. And you start getting the shakes. You start getting all clammy and sweating. And you're like, oh my goodness, what are they going to get here and show up? Okay, first off, the IRS doesn't care like that. There's like field audits, which are super rare. And you have to be like John Gotti. You have to be making a lot of money and be really, really malicious and criminal to have a field audit. And yeah, they do a field audit. They show up, there's badges, the FBI is involved. There's helicopters overhead, machine guns and all that. No, that's super rare. It doesn't happen. But you, it's easy to get a paper audit. And all it is is a letter saying, hey, this doesn't look right. Fix it. That's all they're asking. And of course, if you read the rest of it, there's all these threatening parts. Like if you don't reply to us or if you don't fix this, we will, yeah, we're going to clean house. (laughs) (laughs) But that's if you don't do anything. But no business person or self-respecting business person isn't going to like consider it. So my first audit was, I think I had a, a truck I sold, but I was, it was still being amortized or something. So I really, I didn't recognize the gain I had on selling the vehicle. So I ended up having to owe the IRS like $2,700 because I sold a truck for 10 grand that I'd already written off, but it was yeah. an accident. I'm like, so I contacted my accountant with the shakes. Like I had Parkinson's and Tourette's. I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And he's like, oh, we'll figure it out. And he wrote a letter to the IRS, which I re- which I did in my own letterhead, which is like, dear IRS, it appears I accidentally sold my truck for $10,000. And I didn't recognize that I was supposed to you know, have $2,700 of amortized depreciation on it. I forgot to pay you. Here's a check for $2,700. Then I'm like six weeks, eight weeks later, I get a check back or an email back from the IRS. And they say, your account is clear. Thank you for your cooperation, Mr. Horton. And I was like, well, that wasn't scary, yeah. right? Well, it was and scary, then, but the, the end result was not Yeah, funny. right. But I mean, you could understand, like, you shouldn't make business decisions out of fear. And like, I don't scare, like the IRS does not scare me because I've had so many interactions with the IRS that are absolutely positive. I mean, I once got a bill from the IRS for $86,000. And I'm, you know, I'm in the mail. Green, <laughs> <laughs> Back to the mailing. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, because obviously I don't have $86,000. So I'm trying, and it's like, if you don't pay this in, you know, uh, it was like two weeks. I'm like, I don't know. I don't print money in the basement. So I don't know where they think I'm going to make these, pay 86000 Anyway, it was some type of business. It wasn't a mistake. It was just how I filed our business taxes for my advertising agency. I made a mistake on how the partnerships were paid. Mm-hmm. So the IRS thought each of us was getting $86,000 as a bonus, but actually it didn't work like that. So I just had to like fix my, my schedule C 
for the business. We were at an S corporation and I just revised our taxes and then the $86,000 went away. So it's just paperwork and like filing the correct thing. It's not like anyone's going to come at your door and knock on your door. Are they going to seize your accounts? You know, your accounts get frozen, like in the movies, you know, all your credit cards stop working. I'm like, it simply doesn't work like that. And the last audit I had was for payroll. Um, payroll can be one of the largest triggers of uh, of an audit because 941s or 940s aren't either paid correctly and or paid on time. Mm-hmm. So these are the quarterlies you pay for payroll. And sometimes it's just an oversight because I forgot to pay. I mean, if you're dealing with 16 employees and almost all of them are six-figure employees, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's also yeah. a lot of payroll tax. So if you don't keep up on your payroll taxes and paying them when you're supposed to quarterly, or you have an oversight where you accidentally underpaid your payroll taxes by $100,000, which I did, and you're, you're going to get audited, <laughs> which isn't a big deal. You're just like, oh, yeah, I forgot to pay the extra 100000 in payroll taxes, and you just write a check for 100000 But the other thing, too, is on that issue, I got a refund. So I've had two of my three audits, besides the truck payment, I got a refund because I sent the clarifying information, and the IRS got back to me saying, actually, we're incorrect. We owe you money. <laughs> so two of my three audits, I ended up getting money back. Not huge. eighty six. I didn't get $86,000 back, but <laughs> you know, I got, I think like 450 bucks on one and like a couple grand on another. So field audits are rare for small business and entrepreneurs. It's just not going to happen. You have to be covering up millions and millions of dollars and like really being, have a criminal intent. But nine times out of 10, the IRS, I've called them and say, hey, I made a mistake. I don't know what's going on. Why are you doing this? And I've had talked to someone on the phone with the IRS and they say, no big deal. You want to set up a payment for this? And I'm like, sure. And the reason I set up a payment for it is because I didn't want to pay the IRS right away. I, I did a payment plan of $200 a month because I knew I had to get paperwork organized and sent back to them to get fixed. Mm-hmm. So I just, instead of paying them the lump sum, they wanted like $10,000 for something I had an oversight for. I was like, no, I don't think I, I don't think I owe that, but I just already start paying him $200 a month until I can have time with my accountant to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then like six weeks, my accountant figured out what we did. And we sent my revised tax back to the IRS. The IRS says, we, you've been paying us $200 for no reason. Sorry. They refunded me my $200 and fixed my tax. But they're very, there's people on the IRS that have a heart. They're not these like angry <laughs> like tax collectors. They just want to make sure what you pay is what you pay. and, and and everyone, they want to be fair. Right. Um, but my tax issues and audits have been very positive for me. Yes, they're still scary when you get this huge thick envelope and you're like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. But, <laughs> but don't all, despair. Yeah, don't despair. You're not the first one to have to get a paper audit. Believe me, you're not. It, it doesn't mean you're evil or you were malicious. It just means there's an oversight that they found, fix it, and then move on. While you were talking, it brought up a question that I really wanted to ask you as well in terms of going back to having things set up in a way to bring on employees. And tell me if this is outside of your scope, that's totally fine. And you could definitely answer this, you know, based on your point of view or your opinion, because it's obviously not legal advice. But what do you think about people having an LLC, an S Corp, some type of structure for their business as opposed to being? I think when people start out, at least in the online space, you file for a business license typically, and some people mm-hmm. do incorporate right away and some don't. I think that's depends on their, you know, the business they want to build and their tolerance for risk and that. So some people would say, well, you need to talk to an attorney first right. about that. And then I would, and I always counter this is like, no, 
the reason why is like creating an LLC is yes, it's a legal event, but it's not one that hinders anyone, any Johnny Weekender sole proprietor business owner from doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. So I've had most of my consultant work business-wise or people that are like, oh, I want to start an LLC, but I'm nervous. I got to get an attorney. And I've had, I've seen attorneys charge people $1,500 to get an LLC that costs $250 online. And all you're doing when you're starting an LLC is creating a legal entity to operate a business under. And that's all you're doing. If you are setting up an, an LLC with 16 partners and there's bylaws and there's shares and you're an S corp or a C corp. Okay. Yeah. Even then, I still wouldn't talk to an attorney. I would talk to an accountant first mm-hmm. so they can structure all these rules and stuff. But I, I mean, I'm not bragging, but I can start an LLC and get you an EIN in nine minutes. <laughs> to I be fair, should we disclose also that I'm pretty sure that's how I got my LLC and EIN <laughs> because yeah. you sent me an email. I think I still have it where it was like, oh. okay, here's the link. You fill out this in this box. Like this is what they're asking. And so you told me what some of the boxes meant, oh, which I wouldn't have known. Do you remember that now? Yeah. I Well, people would ask me. So I worked for the small business development center as a business consultant. And like, I started like 30 LLCs every quarter and I just got so tired of like people freaking out. And I saw I made the, like, yeah, it was like, a, it was every single line was something you do on the page. Yeah. And, yeah. Cause it, it, I, I was getting tired of them paying all paying this money for an attorney to do that. And I was like, man, I need to start charging people $1,500 to take nine minutes. I'm like, that's, that's a crime. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I would suggest people do it almost every time. Cause the cool thing about an LLC is for $250, at least it varies at what state you're going to do this with. It creates a really, really good insulation for you as a business owner for liability. Now, People can still, they call pierce the corporate veil, meaning like if you're going to be malicious and if not civil, I can still go after you, whether you're an LLC or not. So like torts exist and litigation exists no matter what you do. But if you're on the other side of things where you're being cautious and diligent and vigilant and you start an LLC, it's the best, cheapest way to isolate yourself and your personal assets. So for instance, when I was a general contractor, I didn't start out as an LLC. I just started out as a sole proprietor because it was a $50 business license. And then I got a handyman license. I'm like, this is all I need. And then one day I was parking a 10,000 pound or 10,000 pound trailer on a hill and it started rolling down a hill, which we didn't think we were on a hill, but it started rolling down a hill. Um, <laughs> and I look up and my employees, I'm like, Hey, where's the trailer? They're like, uh, I don't know. The trailer went down a hill, missed kids on a bike, kids oh. and missed some mailboxes and it went into the woods. Wow. Just like killed, took out a whole bunch of trees. Like we could have killed someone. We could have hit a car. We could have ran over a person. We would have had a massive amount of liability before that accident. And after that's when I started an LLC. <laughs> Not to say if I was an LLC and that happened, I still couldn't have been sued. I would have been sued for sure. However, here's the big difference. Being an LLC and someone goes after me, they can go after my business. They can take my trucks, my trailers, all my business things, all my assets but they can't take my personal vehicle, my motorcycle and my four-wheeler. Like it cuts them off because I've created a, a corporate veil with an LLC. Granted, I could still be sued. Was it 40 ways to Sunday or however they want to say it like for my business side, but I can't be attacked. Like my wife's car is safe. My home is safe. Having an LLC. An LLC costs $250. Like that is a really, really nice level of security to have for $250. And if you want to get into like details of like, well, can I become an S corp or a C corp? Yes. Because you can always start out as an LLC and convert 
what is it called? An 8824 form with the IRS or an SS4. Sorry, it's an IRS form where you can convert an LLC to an S-Corp. But an S-Corp really is only if you have multiple partners. You get into the $75,000 range for net income. There's some things you can do to trigger an S-Corp creation. It's just a different type of corporation. But the easiest, fastest one is an LLC. It creates the most effective and efficient tax bracket and tax mechanism for you. So you're kind of treated, they call it a disregarded entity in the IRS. So the IRS will treat you as a sole proprietor, which is easy for taxes, right? Mm -hmm. But the public will see you as a corporation. And it's the easiest way to keep things organized. Um, For instance, I had a conversation with someone yesterday. They're like, hey, I should be an LLC. I was like, you know why the easiest thing to do in LLC is? Because you go to the bank. Now you can organize yourself between here's my gas money. I wouldn't have dinner with my friend. Here's legitimate business expenses that I created a business account for in the LLC. So you can kind of separate everything because if you're a sole proprietor, sometimes it's kind of easy to co-mingle business with personal and accountants will have a heart attack. <laughs> they do. <laughs> when you're like, oh, well, what, what's this dinner here for? I was like, I want some buddies. I'm like, well, did you buy it in your business card? Like, oh, it's the only card I had. I couldn't find my other one. I'm like, well, you have to keep track of that because the IRS doesn't like it when people go to dinner <laughs> and pay with it for business card. So just keep it all separate. And the LLC is just, you take your EIN number and your LLC documentation to the bank. And now you have a way to keep all your business stuff separate. I think it's super easy. And also uh, the last thing too, is like, now you can be organized, like take your cell phone, put that in the business side. You could lease your car to yourself or your LLC. You can deduct the square footage of your house that's uh, applied for business now. And you can just really start focusing on keeping everything separate. And it's just a good way to keep track of things and be organized. Yeah. I think that's super helpful. I still feel like I would love for people to be able to walk away and think, you know, whether it's a goal of theirs or whether it's just something that they feel like having and hiring an employee could be a good decision for them. We've given them some parameters, including Mm -hmm. if you have 20 hours a week of work. I also say that you're having someone completely dedicated to your business. So for a contractor, usually they're going to have multiple clients, not always, but usually they're building their own business do what you can in the hiring process to say, this is what we desire, but ultimately they're their own business owner. So you can't dictate their work hours. You can't dictate these responses need to be done within 24 hours. You don't have that control. You can negotiate some of that up front. And you know, if the person doesn't abide by that, it it just gets really tricky. So Mm -hmm. I still find business owners that are even upwards of seven figures that are very wary of hiring and play. And from my point of view, I think you can save a lot of money, not just in the ways that you talked about, but even hiring somebody that's going to do a wide range of things. So you might have someone that does admin work. They might edit and produce your podcast. And we're speaking specifically for an online business now. They could do graphics creation. They could do some copywriting, whether that's like taking some research and turning it into a blog post. There's lots of things that you could potentially have lots of contractors to manage. And if you have one employee that's dedicated to your business, they're going to be more responsive to you. And you can hand off a lot of those miscellaneous tasks and train them the way that you want them to be trained. Is there any other things that you would have people consider? Like if they're just not convinced or they're used to, at least in this space, hiring contractors is definitely the norm and hiring employees is more new to people, or at least not talked about as much. So what else would you contribute, if anything, to that discussion about why 
an employee could potentially be better for a business just in terms of the cost savings? Two words came to mind, which is intrinsic and motivation, or you could say intrinsic and investment. So uh, an employee hopefully is intrinsically motivated to be a part of your brand. A contractor is like, well, here's my job. Here's I'm going to do it. And then I'm done. Like they do care that you're successful because they can get more jobs from you. But at the same time, they're not invested in you to be successful like an employee would. And I guess in our give and take world, we're like, well, why would I want to work for somebody else? It's like, I've worked for other people and been a part of their brand and built them into something. And then I was able to like resign or retire or move on. And I can still look back at those brands that I was an employee for and say, man, I helped build that brand. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't have done that as a contractor because that just wasn't my motivation. My motivation was to do XYZ job and get paid for it versus being an employee. It's like, I helped that person build that firm. Like mm-hmm. I helped that visionary or that entrepreneur be successful. And that's like the badge of honor that an employee gets to take with them always. And I think that gets lost in today's world where we have all these contractors, like everyone's wanting to be a contractor or in the gig economy versus like being a part of a brand. And like, I always joke about people saying like drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, like, but it's, it's awesome to be a part of someone's success story as an employee. And I think employees kind of get thrown around like, Oh, you're just a task person, or you're just a clerk, you're just an admin, or you're just this. No, you're a part of someone's brand and part of their success story. And contractors can't necessarily say that they are a part of someone's success, like an employee can be a part of someone's success. So the intrinsic motivation to be there and to help you is something very different than what a contractor can do. And I always say like, you can't have a contractor that's a wingman. That's only an employee's job. Mm -hmm. So the employee I first hired, was scared me to death because I had my first employee. I He was with me for uh, eight years. And when I went to school, he just kept working at my business. He just took over the whole thing kind of. And I got a small little residual part, but he was paying for himself to go through school. Like my business paid for me to go through school. Yeah. And that was, I was part of his development. So he was my first employee to like manager to almost buying it from me, but we decided to go a different way at the end. But that was so cool to be a part of. And like, he still calls me. We're still friends. And I hired him when he was a teenager. And now he's married. He's got a kid and a family and his own other business. But the value of an employee, like I hired a wingman. That's what I did. He took over everything and took so much stuff off my plate. I could be successful because then he could be successful. So I guess it carries over to like developing an employee because you're also developing a relationship. And that doesn't always exist with a contract. For sure. And from your point of view, having hired contractors and employees, is there any nuance in the questions you ask or sort of what you're looking for when you're hiring those people? Usually it's, it's previous work that I'm curious about what they, what they can do. And I'm also, I'm hiring the contractor because they have a very specific core competency that I know I don't have. Mm-hmm. And I've also hired contractors wanting them to become employees. So like I hire contractors knowing that, who I they'd be a good employee. Maybe they're come over and be an employee. And they usually want to push back. But that also means they have a very specific skill set that makes them be very competitive so they can remain a contractor. Otherwise, they'd come over and be an employee. And I've only converted like two contractors to employees. And they were both from Russia. They were really gifted software engineers. And they wanted to become Americans. And they also wanted to become employees. They're like, oh, sure, we'll come over. And granted, they actually made less money, I think, being employees. But they became a part of the brand. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted Mm -hmm. to be a part of the company. Now they're over here, they're crushing it. They're doing great. 
but those are some very specific things. Like they have to be very good at something very specific and they're absolute subject matter experts. And I asked them what their core competencies are. Like, what are you good at? Like, what are you bringing to the table as a contractor that I can't get as an employee? And usually if they don't have it organized, they should just be employed. Mm-hmm. But usually they have a good story that, oh, I can do this. I can program this. I can crash the internet. I'm like, okay, you can be a, a contractor until I see otherwise. I'd love to have you as an employee. Yeah. I give them the option though. I do. Now, what if somebody's from a really small town and they feel like their pool for hiring from within their area or perhaps even their state is an issue? What does it look like to want to hire somebody? Let's say I'm working with somebody who I love and I want to convert them to an employee and they want to also be my employee, but they live in a different state. Is that possible? Does it add more complications to the process in your opinion? Well, I mean, if you were trying to differentiate, like, will they be an employer? Will they be a contractor? If they're in a different state, it's hard to have task level day-to-day management operations of them. So technically they would, they could easily be a contractor, but if they are becoming a more integral part of your business and part of your strategy, but they can also help you with operations, I would try to convert them to an employee just because I like that back and forth and being like in talking with them daily and kind of organizing their tasks, which is definitively what the IRS would say as an employee at this point. Right. Um, but to answer your question, if they're that good, they're worth it. Yeah. And I know the employees I've had, I would always tell them, I was like, you are part of this brand and like, we cannot be successful without you being successful because employees are what drive business. And, mm-hmm. and I think if they, if they're like, who was it? Branson who runs Virgin Atlantic would always say like, you want to train people enough and they enjoy their environment enough that they, they stay, but they're, you're educating them and making them qualified enough to leave. They're just choosing to stay because they like your environment. And it's catch because I've, I've trained people from like nothing to like they're professional now and they could go anywhere, but they're so good. But they have enjoyed the process and the journey that I've helped them be on that they want to stay. That's ultimately the best employee. That's And it's scary for people because it's intimidating to think. I know when I brought on, I have contractors now. So when I brought on my team, I still repeat to them, I want to be the favorite client that you have. If I'm not your favorite client, I'm failing somewhere along the way. Because A, the bar is not that high usually, but there's just small things you can do to really invest in the people that care for you and your business that we'll talk about that in another episode more in depth, but my goal is always that. And so it sounds like in the same way, like your goal is to really invest in people and who they are and their training so that they could leave. And then I think there's a lot of people who have the mindset that they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that because it's a fear holding them back. And so mm-hmm. I really, I think that makes a difference though, between businesses and teams that are really successful and ones that aren't, because if you have that scarcity mindset and that fear, mm-hmm. it's really going to trickle down and you're going to cause the problem that you are trying to avoid creating. Mm-hmm. Amen. Like I should, there's no, there's no stronger final thought than that. Just like they're worth the investment, like every time they are. And I just think sometimes there's news or there's something out there that where people are like, Oh, you know, the office space thing, I need you to come in on Saturday. And I had employees that would show up on Saturday. I didn't even ask them. I had to go to the office and tell them to go home. I'm like, come on, get out of here. Like, well, we got all this stuff to finish. I'm like, yeah, I know, but like life's too short. Like this will never go away. <laughs> like we just have to figure out a different solution. And those are the kind of people that ebb and flow with your business. And like, it is a scarcity mindset to like be concerned. Like, oh no, 
I'm like, no, I just kept giving him raises. And people were like, oh, you're just utopian, Andre. I'm like, no, I would give them raises ahead of the time they thought they needed one. And mm-hmm. they would just rise to the occasion. I love it's it. Pretty cool. Yeah. So if people want to keep hanging out with you, I know you have your photography online. Mm-hmm. What else do you have online? Where would you want people to come say hi, follow along with what you're doing, whatever that might be? <laughs> well, I think I'm at this season in my life where I had this, I went to counseling and that's a whole other podcast that I learned on that. It was a pretty cool process to go through. Or this guy told me, he's like, Andre, no one believes you until you're 40. I'm like, what? Of course, when I was going, I was talking to him, I was like 37 or something, right? So I think I'm at this point in my life where I need to go and do something different. And granted, I have a career and a job. I get that. But I have a so much in my brain, more so in my heart, that I like want to share with the world and people. And it doesn't have to be monetized. It doesn't have to be all, like that. I'm just focused on like I have lots of content in my head and my heart that I want to share that I think is the next direction I want to go. And how and what that looks like, I'm starting to work with this. Um, I'm going to work with this lady called Julie. <laughs> um, Julie Calcote on like kind of materializing what that is. Cause even if people are like, Oh, Andre, you start all these businesses and entrepreneurship and stuff. That doesn't mean I have anything figured out. I'm just on this really cool journey and enjoying where life has taken me, but I'm getting to the season where I'm like, man, I want to like distill some of this, create something with it. And I haven't figured out what that is, but photography is going to be a part of it. Cause I love storytelling and I really, really enjoy people. I've noticed that another podcast we can do is like, how, how you ba- fail in a business. And I've had at least two, I mean, I've had six businesses, two failed horribly, like a hot mess of destruction. And people would ask like, well, I mean, I do it over again. People are like, you're, you are crazy. I'm like, I know, but I learned so much about myself in those scenarios and about people that I wouldn't be where I am today without those failures. And there's gotta be a way or a mechanism or a channel or a podcast or a business where I can illustrate and talk truth to what that experience was like. And for you to say that, I know it's like, it comes across, I don't want to say it comes across as lighthearted, but you're on the other side of it. So maybe you don't have that like emotional trigger that you could have had, but we as friends of your family witnessed at least one of those failures happen. And Mm -hmm. to say that it was a difficult season, I think is putting it lightly because there was (laughs) so, it was hard. It was, I, I don't think, I don't want to for people to walk away and think like, oh, you could fill a business. And the amount of, I don't want to go back to like being humble, but I think your ability to be humble and really take and condense those lessons and to come away from it, not bitter was another powerful example of why you continue to show up and and be successful and and whatever you're going to be and successful in terms of, you know, not just life experience, but you're walking away with still an open heart and, mm-hmm. you know, hope and the ability to go on and, and serve more people in, in different ways and knowing that that ultimately wasn't the direction you were guided in or that you will be guided in the future, but that you don't know what kind of crazy adventures are around the corner. Yeah. I just have a lot of crazy adventures and they all have like the skill set I've learned is not what I thought I'd get. Like I'm not this huge monetary wealthy tycoon. I have like really rich life experiences and really rich. Like if I had to say I'm wealthy, I tell people this all the time. The only thing I'm wealthy with is relationships. And I don't know how that worked out, but if I had to change like relationships for money, it would never work. No, It's just like the relationships I have with people are just like, 
I call it like a sandy milkshake. Like you, you know, milkshakes, you're kind of like, there's some in a grit and you're like, what if it's sand? And people are like, that's gross. Right. <laughs> but the idea of it is like, it's this richness of people. And even the people that I have failed with, I still have a heart for. Cause I like, it, it, it I mean, it's a whole other podcast. I get it. But like the person or the persons that have hurt me the most, I have the most empathy for. Mm. Um, and I, and it, that was the hardest thing to learn is like, how do I forgive those people and, or put myself in their shoes, even though they're the people suing me, are they're the people taking from me. Mm-hmm. And when you do that switch, I don't know what you'd call it, where you can just sit there after weeping for 20 minutes. Like how do, how does a human tear duct create so much tears? Really? I was, I was one of my questions myself. I'm like, where do these come from? And they, they don't stop because it hurts so much. Anyway, the whole point is like, I had this, Mike Rowe calls it a peripatetic moment where it's like this aha moment they have in Greek theater where like the bad guy's a good guy or Darth Vader is Luke's dad. I had this mm-hmm. moment where like, how do I have empathy for people that are hurting me? And when you put yourself in their shoes, your fear goes away, your anger goes away. And you just are, I was overwhelmed for those people that were hurting me. So like, man, what is going on in their life where they would have the capacity to do this to me? Yeah. And when I would put myself in their shoes and be like, oh man, they're having a worse time than I am. For, <laughs> like, for sure. hundred percent. Right. And it takes this like, how do you get to a point in your life where you're recognizing someone else's grief is 10 times worse than yours, even though I'm almost selfish where I should be upset. They lost, they're suing me. I'm losing my business. They're kicking me out of my, then I realized like, man, they are hurting worse than I am to have the capacity to do what they're doing to me. Yeah. And then you get there. I mean, it was like, I was already soul crushed, but then to to recognize that in my own life where I was like, I got to forgive somebody and letting go of a business that's like you're in six figures it's just screwing up everything it's a hot it's a dumpster fire but to recognize like man i feel really bad for that person like i have the most empathy for them like i hurt like i started grieving for them mm-hmm. and so i i switched from grieving from my own like navel gazing as i call it woe is me and my own yeah. self pity to like let it go they can have it cuz they have worse things going on yeah and then like, since then, like even in life in general, have not had a moment where like, I don't sleep well, even though I Absolutely. had so Absolutely. Right. And that's the whole other podcast, but like, how do you recover? Like that first thing you're recovering is like forgiving someone, even though if you're so angry, you could just, <laughs> you could like, you're just, it's this visceral anger you have and that will kill you. Literally it's toxic. Like it'll give you cancer. It will shorten your life and no business is worth that. And I think it's impossible to have experience in business in over a long period of time and not have experiences where, whether it's directed at ourselves because we're angry at ourselves for failing and we have to pick ourselves back up and form a new iteration of, or, Mm -hmm. or change our dream. Like we thought this is our dream and it's not, or you have relationships with other people and you know, the longer you're in business, I think it's it's just inevitable, but some of those things are going to happen. And so figuring that out, I know in season two, we plan on really talking about things unique to online space and also unique to business in terms of how fast things progress in that space, how to really plan. So if you're interested in those conversations, this season is obviously all about hiring and what that looks like. And then we're really going to take a deep dive into how to pour love and energy into your business, make it uniquely you and how to figure out how to show up. And I think a conversation about trials and 
picking yourself up after failure is something that I would not only benefit myself, but I know so many other people. So I really look forward to that and I will hunt you down. I know I'm sure people will be sending messages to both of us. (laughs) We'll make sure that happens. Well, I did do a conversation in a podcast with someone on just failure and I got interviewed and they're like, tell us about failure. And I think the hardest part for people to, in our common, in our society sometimes is like, we don't like to talk about failure because we like winners, right? But I guarantee you the the greatest winners (laughs) have like only gotten there by the horrible failures. So like failure is something or failure and admitting fault is something we don't like to talk about Americans for sure or humans. But I think when you can address your own failure and these massive shortcomings and and I wouldn't say just like have, you don't have to be um, a martyr and fall on your own sword all the time, but like Jocko Willock and like extreme ownership and like taking extreme ownership of your failure and where you're short will only create this massive horizon for you to be successful. Yeah. I think we'll definitely link his book in the show notes. And we can also link that other podcast episode. If people would like to follow along, we'll send them to your Instagram so they could check out your photography and just, you know, what's happening in your world. And then I think any other announcements you have, you know, with what's coming next, I'm sure we'll be on the socials and. Yeah. You will know first I'm, I'm working with you. I'm officially our announcement now. (laughs) Right. On what I'm what I'm, I'm going to do next because it's all, my wife's always like you should just go talk to Julie. She this is what she does. I'm like I understand, and so I that's my next step. I'm excited. Well, we start today then. <laughs> okay, today let's do it. Right. Okay. Well, Andre, thank you so much, and this has just been it's been a pleasure and also really rare for us because even though we do know each other in real life, I think so much of managing kids or, you know, we might not be having these conversations, but this is just been such a pleasure. And really, I'm so grateful for you to have taken the time out to do this. Likewise. It's been fun catching up outside of context and it's, you have a renewed energy. I haven't like never seen this side of you and it's, I'm really excited where you're going to go. Cause like, it's been fun to like, listen to you and talk. I'm excited where you're going. Thanks, Andre. I appreciate it. Well, we will see you in the hood and we'll also see you in season two. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Julie.